Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. Today, I'm going to introduce you to a new friend of mine. Her name is Quinn Galloway Salazar. Quinn is an Army veteran. She's the spouse of a retired combat veteran who is currently serving in law enforcement. Her years of military and professional experience have provided her with the knowledge and abilities to support the needs of the service members and their families' population. She currently is the co-director of SAMHSA's Service Members, Veterans, and Their Families Technical Assistance Center at the Policy Research Associates Incorporated. Quinn has a passion for our veterans and their families that is just infectious. She has a heart for our veterans who have served and who are bearing the scars that aren't always visible to the rest of us. So let's dive on into our conversation. All right. So welcome, Quinn Galloway Salazar, to Community Possibilities. I am so happy to have you on the podcast. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. This is extremely exciting. Well, you and I met, gosh, a year and a half-ish ago through a mutual friend, and I was asked to come on a conference that your organization was doing, and I did a session on, I think, using evaluation results, something like that, right? Data visualization, to be exact. Oh, yeah, very good. Yeah, awesome. And uh, yeah, so that was a lot of fun. So that's how you and I have um, got to know each other. But I want you to introduce yourself to my audience. Sure, absolutely. Well, once again, my name is Quinn Galloway Salazar. Um, I'm an Army veteran. I am a spouse of a combat veteran who is currently serving in law enforcement. I am a mother to six amazing Uh, daughters, three that I gave birth to, and three that are bonus daughters. So yes, we have a household full of, well, we have three living with us. The other three are adults, but a household full of girls. So my poor husband. a lot of estrogen. (laughs) Estrogen, a lot, all the time. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of hormones and feelings all the time. Um, So it's, it's, it's always a wild ride at my house. Um, I was born and raised in Queens, New York, so I am a city girl to the heart. I came to Georgia for college in 2000, uh, and then in 2001, I made the decision to join the military um, in April of 2001, to be exact, uh, with the thought that I won't see another war while I do my time in the military, since the last war that occurred, I was in the third grade. I know that I am dating myself and, and, and telling my age a little bit. Um, but long story short, as you all know, uh, 9-11 happened shortly mm-hmm. after I got out of basic training. And my life took a major detour, went upside down, crisscrossed, and uh, a new journey was set afire for me. Um, based on me simply just raising my right hand to serve. So how, tell me a little bit more about what you did in the military and kind of how that affected you and put you on the trajectory, because you have a very interesting career path. 
Yeah, sure. So I joined the Army Reserves in April of 2001, uh, and I was actually called up to active duty in 2003. Um, Fortunately for myself and my family, I did not deploy, but I mobilized to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and I did two tours there. Um, And my role was to support uh, soldiers that were getting ready to deploy. Um, My military occupational specialty, which is called an MOS, uh, was finance. And so I made sure that everyone that was getting ready to deploy was getting paid. Um, One of the most important jobs in the military. Um, But during that time, I had the opportunity to sit in and take a postmaster test and I was able to work the mailroom. And that was really the time and when I got a chance to see the human side of the military. Um, Oftentimes I had soldiers come to my building because I worked alone because of regulations, federal regulations. And I would sit with them and they would share stories about their wives were pregnant and they were leaving and they didn't know when they were gonna have the opportunity to see their babies, if they were gonna be able to come home and see the birth of their babies. Um, A plethora of other family issues that these service members were facing during that time. And I realized that I was kind of like a safe space for them. Right. Never my intent, but it just was so. And I would have soldiers come to my building just to talk in the evening times, Mm. just to talk about what they were afraid of. You know, I had soldiers that would say, am I going to make it home? Oh, my gosh. I just want to make it home. And I carried that with me so much so that upon finishing my bachelor's degree in criminal justice, I decided to pursue a master's degree in counseling Mm. with a focus on um, service members in combat. Well, that kind of led me, led you led me right to where I wanted to go, which was, you know, you kind of answered that question. You've been working with veterans pretty much your whole career since getting out of the military. Yeah. Yeah. So, Absolutely. It's, so you, it's, yeah, it's been my career. Right? I, right. And I laugh because people say, you know, was this your plan? And oftentimes I'm like, no, this was not my plan at all. This was kind of like God's plan. Um, because when I got out, when I got off of active duty, I, I, I say this frequently to many people, I took my uniform off and I chucked it to the side mm-hmm. and was like, I'm done. Right. I have seen some things, I'm done. And that just wasn't the path that was laid before me. Um, Quite honestly, it was just the beginning. You know, I've noticed with the folks that I know that have been in the military, especially those who've been in the military a hard time, for a long time, rather, that it's, it's an adjustment. Um, It's, it's such a, almost a shock. Uh, I had a good friend of mine that uh, retired from the Air Force a couple of years ago as a full bird colonel. And, you know, we're so proud of her. And she really had a hard time because she felt like, what is my mission now? Yeah. Like, what do I do now? Um, I don't think those of us who are not in the military, like my 
my father was in the Air Force, but he retired when I was very small. So I don't have that as a culture. I don't have that experience. It's hard for us to really kind of get in that mindset and understand what you go through uh, because it's such a specific culture, right? You have a yeah. language, like even when you so you define, what did you say? M-O-M-O-S. O-M-S. M-O-S, right? I wanted to say M-O-U, M-O-U's. You guys have your own language. You have your own way of looking at the world because I couldn't even relate to that. Well, what do you, what do you mean you don't have a mission? Of course you have, you know, you just like, you go out and do whatever you want to do. So is, I don't know if that you can kind of speak to that as a struggle. Yeah, I can. Absolutely. My transition was horrible. Oh gosh. (laughs) Sorry to hear that. No, don't be sorry. I mean, once again, you know, a lesson learned so that I can ensure that others won't experience the same transition that I did. Right. So I transitioned back home in 2005 Um, I was 21 and I thought, you know, hey, I just served my country. I need to find a civilian job. Anyone, you know, I I have a DD-214, a DD-214, which is the paperwork that shows that I served honorably. The very first time and the very first and last time, might I add, that I stepped into an interview for for a civilian employer. I stepped in for a finance position because once again, I mentioned my job in the military was finance. I walked into the building. There, there's a lounge room with people riding on scooters and margarita machines and popcorn machines. And I just left the military where I worked in a World War II barrack. That was my building. Were you interviewing at Google? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, but a very progressive agency at that time, clearly. Um, And I sat across from the interview panel and there was just this gap, right? There was a a cultural shock on both ends. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't understand them because I was very stoic and I was very rigid and I was... um, very linear in my thought process. Mm-hmm. And I could see the, I could see the interviewers white knuckle because they did not know what to say or what to do with mm-hmm. me. Nor were they familiar with the fact that women veterans serve and they look a heck of a lot different than what the male veteran looks like. So say a little bit more about that. What do you, what do you exactly do you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, you know, you think about a veteran, um, especially back in 2005 and 2006, you saw the face of a man, Mm. not necessarily a woman Mm -hmm. and an African-American woman at that. Mm -hmm. And I vowed at that point that I didn't know how I was going to come back around and make, make a right in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. But I vowed that I did. Um, and so when you asked a bit about what's outside of my bio, I'm finishing my PhD and my study is actually focused on the lived experiences of post 9-11, post 9-11 women veterans who are transitioning into the civilian workforce. Oh, how about that? That's amazing. Came full circle and it's come full circle and it's a blessing. Yeah. Um, it's a blessing to be able to 
one, allow other women veterans who feel invisible to not feel so invisible Mm -hmm. and to have a voice and impact change um, with their stories and with their recommendations. Mm -hmm. And so that has been like one of the best honors of my life Mm -hmm. to, um, to pick a topic that is near and dear to my heart and really shed light on the needs and the challenges faced by our population. Congratulations on your PhD. That's amazing. Thank you. Let me know when your defense is. I'll say some prayers for you for sure. I'm in, it's in the queue. I'm hoping it'll happen sometime in August. Oh my gosh, that's so soon. I'm I'm done. Like I've written it. It's, It's with my chair and my methodologist right now as we speak. So I will definitely let you know how that goes. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I, I'm sure you're going to do great. So one of Thank the you. things that you and I have talked about before, and we can kind of get into um, the position that you have now sure. is, and I, and I, I'm glad you're on the show because I don't consider myself an expert. I understand that um, the rates of suicide and mental health issues, anxiety, all of those things are through the roof with our veterans. I know that we have a lot of uh, veterans who are homeless, and a lot of that has to do with their mental health and their substance abuse issues because they bear those scars, not just physical scars, but that emotional scars. So let's talk a little bit about that, maybe how you kind of entered into that work even more deeply. And I don't know if you want to talk about before or after, but you're now with uh, SAMHSA's Service Members, Veterans and Their Families Technical Assistance Center. And that's how you and I really came to know each other because I spoke at their conference, a couple of their uh, their conferences. Yes. And I love how anything related to the military always has to have a long name and acronym. <laughs> That's so hard to say. So maybe anyway, you can talk about that work because I think you had told me a story about um, uh, having an experience with someone who was in a suicidal crisis. And maybe I think maybe that came before your work now at the center. Anyway, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure, sure. Um, As you mentioned, I've had a colorful uh, path that has led me to the point that I'm with the service member veterans and their families technical assistance center. Which you say love. it. Mu- Hold on, I gotta stop you. <laughs> How do you like roll that off your tongue like that? That's amazing. Uh, you know, it took a lot of practice. It took a lot of practice. Um, but we like to call it the SMVFTA center to shorten it. Um, because yes, it is extremely long, especially when you break down SAMHSA. And, you know, it, it's it's a lot. Nonetheless, um, I got to this place, right? So I think the bigger question to ask is, how did I get into the world of suicide prevention? Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say that I didn't go out looking for work in suicide prevention. Literally, suicide prevention came and looked for me. Mm-hmm. Uh I was serving at the Georgia Army National Guard in a civilian position and was called um, to do a wellness check on a woman veteran. And so upon getting to her home, we noticed that she was in crisis. Um, There was a suicide attempt. And I'll be honest with you, Anne, every bit of my training 
prior to that point kicked in at that point. Um, my work with law enforcement and training de-escalation techniques kicked in, right? Sitting with that young veteran and grounding her in the here and now and just letting her know that she wasn't alone and we were connected and I was going to be there to support her as she journeyed to her recovery really taught me a lesson, right? You know, we one thing that veterans, especially in the army, we never leave a fallen comrade. And at that point, I felt that the universe was telling me my purpose was to be of service to her until she was at a place where she was okay. So I accompanied her to the hospital. I stayed with her in the hospital until she was settled in a room. I followed up with the hospital staff the days that she was in the hospital. When she got out of the hospital, I connected her and her mother to the VA having a meeting. And they were like, how were you able to put this together? Because at one point I worked for the VA. So I was able to help orchestrate that. Um, And when she finally got well enough, she gave me a gift. And the gift was a pen with her daughter engraved, her daughter's photo engraved in it. Her daughter had died a few years before in a tragic fire. And you know, her her suicidal attempt was because it was the anniversary of her daughter's death. Um, but what I was going through at that time myself was I had just had my youngest daughter and I was battling um, with postpartum. Mm -hmm. And I was battling with some of my own demons. And so I took a break from the work. And then the idea of going back into the space of working with veterans again came up. So I took a break and I went to the state and I worked in treatment courts for about a year. Um, I just had to switch it up. Just, just, just a little bit. And an opportunity came up to work for the service member veterans and their families technical assistance center. And at the time, their big push was suicide prevention. And I was like, wow, how, how fitting is that? How timely is that? And I launched and I, I, I jumped in head first and I started out as an associate to, to, to be quite honest. Um, I didn't start out as a co-director and I worked my way all the way to a co-director. And, you know, people ask me, how did that happen so fast? I walked into the position knowing my why. Mm -hmm. I saw what suicide looked like firsthand and I understood my why and I understood my mission and I understood my purpose. And it's beautiful to see um, just glimmers of my work infused um, nationally at this point. Yeah. And you know what? I, I can really relate to that um, kind of that looking back and seeing how, how we come to be where we are. Cause I think a lot of, a lot, I would say all the time we're led to where we're supposed to be. If we, if we really listen, we may not see ahead of us, but sometimes when we look behind, like, okay, I get it. (laughs) I know where you want me to go. 
that part. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm going to say yes to that. Yeah. That part. So tell us, sorry, go ahead. There's, there's a quote that I love. And the quote is the place God calls you to is where your deepest gladness Mm -hmm. and the world's deepest hunger meet. Ooh. And I I keep it in front of me. So hence I'm looking at it. Um, I keep it in front of me as a constant reminder Mm -hmm. for the days where I just want to throw in the towel. It's a constant reminder to me Mm -hmm. um, that is purposeful and it's purpose-driven work. Right. Um, And it's, it's work that I was chosen to do. Yeah. Um, So that's my story. I love it. I love it. So tell me a little bit more about the center and what the center does and all of that. Yeah. At the center, we actually are, uh, we're a national technical assistance center where we provide states and territories and counties and cities and communities uh, technical assistance on um, bettering their behavioral health systems for service members, veterans, and their families. So, you know, we provide tons of training, webinars, um, conference calls, you name it. We, we connect our states and, and our cities with um, national experts in this work. Um, but one of our largest initiatives is called the Governor's Challenge to Prevent Suicide among service members, veterans, and their families. Um, and to date, we have 35 states, 35 governors who have signed on for that challenge to create strategic action plans and implementation plans to really lead the way in addressing um, suicides in their states. Um, And so the beauty is prior to the pandemic, we would travel state teams into Washington, D.C., where it's almost like a mini university. And we like to call it the Policy Academy. And we travel them in and we have all of these experts there to provide them one on one assistance in really honing into what their logic models are going to look like, what their action plans are. They measurable? What are the outcomes? Just all the stuff that oftentimes blows people's minds when they're in the communities figuring out how to do this work. We really bring them into D.C. to hone in dig deep, get to the nitty gritty and get clarity about what they want to do to support this population. Well, you are so speaking my language, the, the, the logic models, the action plans, the work plans, developing the work, trying to figure out what you're doing. Cause yeah. I'm, I do evaluation, but I am not that kind of evaluator who, <laughs> you know, hand me your data and I'll crunch it for you. And you know, spit out a report. There's actually a foundation director here in Atlanta that tells people like, uh, yeah, don't hire Anne if that's what you're looking for because that's Ah. not what what she does. I love doing that technical assistance because it it takes so much hand-holding to do all of the things that we're talking about. So can you give us some examples of what some of the communities are doing? Maybe just a couple. Because every community is different. Every community is different. Um, I I got one off the top of my head that I'm thinking about right now. So uh, I like to use the state of Oklahoma. Oklahoma holds a very special place in my heart. When I started with the TA Center, that was one of the very first places that I flew into. Um, And actually, Oklahoma started as a mayor's challenge. Um, Oklahoma City and Tulsa, there were two mayor's challenge teams in that state. And they worked their tails off to really build um, 
collaboratives, right, in their community, bringing the right partners to the table to really impact um, their work. And so that progressed into their opportunity to have a governor's challenge, right? So a statewide effort. So some of the things that they're working on, one primarily that I know that I just heard within the last week, they've designed a media campaign toolkit right, where they're having the opportunity to share with others and share with other states on how to bring awareness as it relates to suicide prevention in this population. Um, they're doing a, a, a ton of training throughout their state, training different employers, training different agencies on how to become culturally aware. I won't exactly say culturally competent, I'll mm -hmm. say culturally aware of the needs of the military population. Um, they're also hitting rural areas, right? So, you know, living in an urban city, you have an abundance of resources. But when you go to rural cities, I mean, rural towns um, like Ada, Oklahoma, that's one that jumps out in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, very rural, not as many resources that are made available to them. And they're working on finding ways to stand up one-stop shops so that veterans can go in and get their resources and their needs met there. Um, Georgia, I can't, I can't not talk about, you know, but I have a bias with where Georgia. we live. It's where we live. However, Georgia has been doing this work, this collaborative work, and since about 2008, 2009, um, we started with an initiative called Paving the Way Home. And it was a, just a solid group of folks who really were driven to support this population coming home. And it has morphed into so many different arms throughout the state. Um, and so Georgia is also a governor's challenge uh, state. And so in Coweta County, they're actually piloting a program specifically for peer supports for veterans. Mm -hmm. um, they're also expanding on a training called uh, Star Behavioral Health Providers, where they're training clinicians on becoming culturally competent. So it's a tiered training mm -hmm. where they're understanding the needs of the population, but they're also learning modalities, um, whether it's uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, whether it's exposure therapy, they're learning modalities to specifically work with this population. Mm -hmm. And there's a directory that's been created by Purdue University, um, where these clinicians can list that, you know, they serve service members, veterans and their families, and they're culturally competent or aware in post-traumatic stress disorder, moral injury, just, just a gambit to really show that they are working to meet the specific needs of this population. And I think that's so cool. And I'm gonna tell you why that's so cool. Oftentimes, Veterans are not going to step out and say, mm. I need help. Whether they're active or not active. Whether I mean, I can understand active, right? They might be afraid it would affect their career, but Correct. what is it about the culture that? It's the culture. We're trained that we're tough and we can get through things. Um, historically, that's been our culture, right? We don't quit. And sometimes asking for help for some often feels like a sign of weakness or mm -hmm. that you quit. Um, but when you think about these clinicians that are embedded in this STAR behavioral health providers system, you know, a veteran can go and, re and reach out and say, I need help. 
and walk into a space where that therapist may not exactly know what it's like to be in combat, mm-hmm. but he knows a little bit enough to show that that veteran that he's he or she is not having to teach that therapist the things that they need to know, right? Mm-hmm. So it's helping to build that early trust, that early rapport that's extremely necessary because it's that one shot. You got that one shot. If you can't hook me in that first time, the likelihood that I'm going to come back is slim to none. Mm-hmm. So having this training available to really enhance our clinicians' um, levels of understanding, empathy, knowledge, all of that, is, it's incredible. I want to circle back to something that you, I have a question. Well, first I have a thought, then I have a question. So we have, there's stigma everywhere, right? In the larger culture in which we live, there's stigma. And it's, but it seems like it's even more pronounced maybe in the military, maybe. Mm -hmm. And maybe that has something to do with it. But I want to ask you about, did did you say moral injury? Like M-O-R-A-L, moral injury. What is that? Moral injury. You know, I like to just give examples, right? Say, for instance, I'm a service member that served in combat. And I have a level of spirituality. Um, And something happens in combat where it goes against what I believe. Mm -hmm. And it impacts who I am. It impacts my values. It impacts, it it impacts my whole being. And so we're associating that with what's called moral injuries Mm. of war. Um, It's, it's, it takes it a step deeper than what we, we think about with post-traumatic stress, right? It brings in that, sh- that shame. It brings in that level of guilt. It brings in that um, unresolved business that may have happened while one was on the combat field. Um, and, and not always on the combat field. Sometimes those type of things can happen right here um, on our soil as well. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for explaining that because I had not heard that term before. So are there any challenges that community coalitions that work with vets face (laughs) that maybe, I don't know, maybe it's different. I work with a lot of substance abuse coalitions, public health coalitions. Is it different for coalitions that work with vets or maybe it's, maybe it's not, I don't know. You know, I I wouldn't say that there's, quite honestly, I wouldn't say that there's a huge difference But for your audience, I want to say these things. Uh, Evaluation is a huge one. (laughs) It could be a sticking point for a lot of folks, a lot of coalitions and nonprofits, absolutely. It's a huge one because a lot of our um, coalitions and partnerships and collaborations, you say evaluations and you see them clamor up, mm-hmm. right? There's just this thing. And I think it's because a lot of times when you think they think of evaluations, they're only thinking of the quantitative side mm-hmm. of evaluations and not thinking about how much of an impact the stories can have as well. Right. Um, so it's, it's, you know, and we're going through that with some of our states right now. We're offering them workshops. We've offered three workshops. We completed three workshops, actually, um, on data collection. Um, 
Well, let me back that up. We had an evaluation conference last fall, and then we started doing some more evaluation work with our states. So we just had three uh, data collection workshops. We're doing three data analysis workshops. There's actually one happening right now. Um, And then we're giving one-on-one coaching. But there's still this, you know, when when it's time for questions and answers, there's this lull. Right. There's this low. Um, And I think it's because it's important that and correct me because I am not an evaluator. So definitely chime in, because I think we can we can help really uh, shape this narrative. I think it's really important that the evaluation component is brought in on the front end. Mm -hmm. Right. It's brought in on the front end and not towards the tail end of the work. Um, and make building that evaluation piece an ongoing process, right? Yeah. I think that's, I think sometimes that gets lost in translation. Right. Um, the idea is we need to do evaluation so we can sustain. Yes, you need to do evaluation mm-hmm. so you can sustain, but start those evaluation efforts early on in the early on in your work so that you can sustain and you have a really good sustainment plan in place. Mm -hmm. And I spoke at that evaluation conference that you're talking about. That's when I did the using evaluation results, that data viz thing, which I love because I find if people can use their data, if they can see what that might look like, both the quantitative and the qualitative are necessary to tell that full story, then they get excited and then they get less intimidated. But you're absolutely right. People tend to like glam up, get all stressed out. They're worried about that they are being judged or their program's going to be a judge or they're going to lose funds or whatever. So it really does take um, some charm and some you know, just using common language, because I don't know why evaluators have to like make everything so complicated. (laughs) So just putting things in a very simple language helps kind of lessen the anxiety, holding their hand throughout the whole time. But that's the kind of work that that I love to do providing that TA, but it's really about um, helping them understand it's really about improving what that coalition, what that community group, what that nonprofit is is doing. It's really all about, you know, because at the end of the day, we want to know that we're making a difference. And that's evaluation at its best is all about, we just want to help you be the best you can not, oh, I just did an army thing. Be the best you can be. <laughs> that is army, be. right? <laughs> Old school army. <laughs> yeah, that's that. That's the. I'm dating now. I'm dating myself. So I want to totally switch gears here let's now. Do it. Um, your husband has been in some kind of law enforcement, I think, for his whole career. So now he works for the sheriff's office, where I guess around where you live. Right. Um, and you have to be on another planet if you don't know that there has been some stuff going on in terms of law enforcement in the community, specifically with um, primarily black males, but also um, black females being um, shot and killed by police officers. I'm getting kind of like goosebumps just like bringing this up because I imagine it's hard for your husband, for your family to be in that space. So I recognize that's really personal, but I just want to kind of open up kind of do you want to share anything about your journey, your husband's journey, your family's journey in that space? Yeah, why not? 
why not? Let, let's do it. You know, the more awareness that we can bring um, to the topic, why not do it? Uh, very, very challenging uh, past year and a half, two years, I think with the pandemic and just with everything going on, the time has merged. Um, but what's, what's, what strikes me, and, and I remember, you know, the, um, the large protest that happened in downtown Atlanta, um, the very first one, like it was yesterday, right? So my family and I, we were on, on the road getting ready to go grab a bite to eat, and my husband gets this call. And my husband gets a call that says, you need to get to the, to the department within the next hour. Mm. And that ride back home was silent. My kids and I had been watching what had been happening throughout the country, right? I don't let current affairs not uh, be shown in my household mm -hmm. um, because I think it's very important for my kids to also see all facets of life. Um, and I remember that night and we turned on the television and my middle daughter looked at me in and she said, is daddy going to be okay? Oh my gosh. So you're talking about the protests that were going the on, the fires, on, the, right, the fire right here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. My daughter said, is daddy going to be okay? And I'll be quite honest with you in the back of my mind, I worried the same thing. And so it, 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 it put me on a personal journey to begin exploring what can I do as a citizen? What can I do as a spouse of a law enforcement officer of color? And so I, I, I wrote a blog, I started there. I had to get all my feelings out on paper. I wrote, I wrote a blog and I started sharing that blog with police departments. And coincidentally, the police department where I lived, the chief responded. And my ask of him was to host a community forum where we could bring in, once again, I was thinking about my daughter, young children of color and bring them in with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with the World Cafe. Oh yes. Love it. Love it. I wanted to have a World Cafe forum. Um, and we started planning it and the numbers for COVID started ticking higher mm -hmm. and higher and higher. And we had to pause it. But it's something that's completely not mm -hmm. shelved because it's, a, it's, it's an issue that we're still going to face. But then I really wanted to have the opportunity to allow youth to interface with law enforcement because that's where it starts. Mm -hmm. That level of trust, that level of understanding is where it starts. I remember several years ago, I was doing a, a crisis intervention uh, training, team training, which is CIT um, here in Atlanta. And I had, there was an officer that made a comment about um, young black children running when they see the police. Mm -hmm. And he shared the story and he shared that 
you know, he was having an interaction, a dialogue with a youth and was told that oftentimes black children are taught to run from the police, not necessarily because that they've done something wrong, but because they don't want to die by the police. And that did something to me because we have officers like my husband and we have officers that are all over this nation that are really working hard to change the face of law enforcement, to really be engaged in their communities. And I think it's gonna take a collective effort to really bring the community and law enforcement to the table to really talk through some of these challenges that are systemic, some of these traumas that are general generations deep in our communities, but we gotta start somewhere. Mm -hmm. We gotta start somewhere. And so, you know, Dr. Dick and I with uh, Next Step Evaluations, we started working this plan, right? We started really developing what would a world cafe look like in Gwinnett County um, to bring youth and law enforcement together. So once again, I'm hoping, I'm hoping within the next year or so we can get that back on the books and, and, and start that up and really have our kids really share what their thoughts and their fears are, and what are some things, action steps that they, that law enforcement and our youth can do together mm -hmm. to quell some of the challenges that mm -hmm. we're facing in our society. Yeah. You know what that brings to um, mind is something that my daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law and I were talking about just the other day. So I have a four-year-old granddaughter and I think my grandson is 20 months old oh. and she was she was talking about how um, Ellie had seen like a police officer and said, so I, I can't remember exactly the story, but it was something like, well, she had like, oh, look, mommy, there's someone there's a police officer there. They're they're there to help. That's someone who can help. Right. In yeah. her little mind. Yeah. And it just um, like struck her she's uh my daughter-in-law is uh an american but her parents are not but her parents are colombian uh so she has she's multicultural and she has she has that she's aware and it just really touched her heart that her daughter felt that way and she knew that other black and brown people would not look at police officers in the same way now i don't know yeah. if it's true that um you know African-American children are taught to run away from police. I don't know if that's true. I know they have a different experience right. because they see maybe their uncle or their brothers or their fathers or someone in the family be arrested. They don't see police as helpful. Right. But it right. just really hurt her heart that her mm -hmm. daughter would have that. And she was glad she wants them. She wants Ellie to see that they're helpful, but knowing that other people do not see and that's got to hurt your husband. I'm sure it does. It does. You know, it, it definitely does. Um, he does a lot of work in the community. And I want to back up a little bit and, and make sure that I'm clear with saying that, that that description of a young Black boy running was the scenario of one officer, mm -hmm. right? As, as a Black woman, I will say that we're not all taught the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, however, it hurt my heart to hear that as an experience of one officer um, and, and how he had to learn that in that particular community. Um, 
you know, during the, the protests, you know, my husband would come home and some days were good and some days were really, really, really bad. Um, and as we couldn't put together the World Cafes, my husband and I, we forged together and said, well, what can we do with you in that squad car every day? Oh, I didn't mention that. So my husband has a take home vehicle. And so there's a squad car that sits in front of my home. Mm-hmm. And during that period of time, we had to ensure that one of our vehicles was out and squad car was in the garage mm. because our home was a target. Mm-hmm. Um, as unfortunate as, a, as it was, it just was the case. Um, and so my husband was like, well, you know, whenever I go out and I see, I'm from, if I'm at the gas station or I'm somewhere and I see kids, I like to give kids you know, he keeps coloring books and crayons and they have like little sticker sheriff badges mm-hmm. and he keeps all of that with him. And he's a big kid himself. He just is. He He's with he six is. girls. He needs to be. <laughs> he's, he's, you know, when you see him, it's like, uh, but he's just a big teddy bear. Um, but what we decided to do, and this was especially around the Christmas holiday, was we went to Disney and we just bought all of these plushes. And he keeps them in their trunk. He keeps them in his trunk. Mm-hmm. And so just at random, you know, he'll let, of course, with the parents' permission, he'll let kids come back and pick out something, right? And really just meet them where they are. And I commend him for really working hard to be an active voice in our community um, and ensuring that you know, the interactions that some of these kids are having with law enforcement are positive ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, he'll come home some days and say, listen to this story. And he just lights up. But I know in turn that experience with that child afforded them the opportunity to light up as well. And that's a memory that I'm sure for many they'll hold. And there are times we're in the community and he's out of uniform and Random people will be like, hey, Officer Salazar. And I'm like, oh, geez. And it's, it's you know, it's never been a negative experience. It's oh always God. it's always been such a positive experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm thankful for that. And it reminds my kids as well that there are really some amazing officers mm-hmm. out there that are doing amazing work. Um, and it allows my kids to be advocates as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And share with their peers that, hey, not all officers are bad. There are some officers that really care. And, you know, career day, my husband goes with his vehicle and he does all the things for the kids at school. No one wants to hear about my stuff. They want to hear about my husband's career because Mm -hmm. it's it's cool to them and it allows them to see the better side Mm -hmm. of law enforcement. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I'm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I yeah, appreciate that. And sure, we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, we've for sure. So as we close, let me ask you: What do you think it's going to take to really change our communities? More compassion. Hmm. More compassion. Um, there's there's suffering of all magnitudes that's going on. And I think sometimes we get so inundated with what's going on in our social media world and our own worlds that we sometimes just kind of forget that there's a world that exists outside of us. Um, And just 
bringing more awareness to the sufferings that are happening right in your local community, right on your local, start where you live, mm-hmm. right on your local block, start there, you know, start with your neighbors, then mm-hmm. extend it. Um, and, and just feeling empathy for others, mm-hmm. you know, yep. feeling that empathy, not sympathy, but empathizing what others are going through. And I think if the pandemic hasn't shown us that, I don't know what will. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for you, Quinn? What's next for me? Uh, PhD. My PhD PhD is next for me. Um, My PhD is next for me. Um, I actually was also invited to, um, this is really big, really, really a huge honor for me. Um, I was invited to sit as an advisory board member for the Veteran Studies Association. And it focuses on veteran studies internationally. And I, you know, I'm like, little old me, I get to look at things from a broader context than just America. I'm like, how awesome is that? And to be able to mentor other scholars, um, that's big. Um, Because it's hard work, but it's hard work to really dig into the lives of those who serve and understanding that it is, we are not an easy population at all. There are levels of complexity that, heck, to be honest, I don't fully understand. Um, But to help shape and to help mentor uh, those that are coming after, that's that's a huge win. If, 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 if not for, you know, linking my PhD just to that alone is a win for me, being able to cheerlead other scholars along to do this work, um, to find, you know, find what's happening, to hear about the lived experiences, to figure out better ways to support our population. Um, That's big. Um, The other side to to that is I recently just um, completed my training in becoming an end-of-life doula. Now, that's a new term. (laughs) What is that, Quinn? Yeah, what? (laughs) What? And how did you find that? Is is that like hospice? Tell me. Tell me more. Tell you more. Yeah, um, it's, it's actually bigger. It's more than hospice, but it started in hospice and really the end of life doula is kind of like the the childbirthing doula right you're there to hold someone's hand as they're going through the end of life journey um and so i i made the conscious decision to become an end of life doula to support veterans and their caregivers as they transition um because some of those things that we talked about earlier on and some of that moral injury, some of that PTSD, some of the the gambit of challenges that veterans face in life resurface at the end of life. Um, And through the pandemic, earlier on in January, it, it came to my head like all of these issues that are happening with our veterans that we're so focused on, especially our post 9-11 veterans, How are they impacting our Vietnam veterans that are entering into that phase of life now? And I realized that there's some gaps. 
Mm-hmm. And who am I not to fill some of those mm-hmm. gaps? And so as an end of life doula, my goal is to really to sit in that space with that veteran and just that camaraderie, right? I may not have been exactly where you've been, but I understand service and I understand being called to something greater than yourself. And I'm here to journey with you to your journey is complete. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's my new passion project. Um, and it's, it's taken off a little bit faster than what I had anticipated. Um, I was actually asked to write a mini curriculum for end of life professionals um, to talk about the heart centered work, right? Not the, 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 the bigger space of the work, but the heart centered piece of the work as it relates to end of life professionals working with veterans. Um, I was on a call recently with a uh, hospice physician and she shared with me, I wish I would have had this conversation with you years ago Mm. because there's so many things I think I could have done with my patients that I didn't because I didn't know better. I think that's so awesome that you're going to continue to serve the, our military and veterans. That's so awesome. Thank so you. I want to end with this question that I ask everybody who comes on the show. So when you look to the future, mm-hmm. what community possibilities do you see? That's a really good question. I think I'm going to circle it back around to compassion. And I see community possibilities where we are compassionate to one another, no matter the color of our skin, no matter our cultures, no matter our genders, no matter our, we are just humankind. Mm -hmm. And we are in a space where if we see another that is hurting, we'll be there to help step in and help mitigate some of that suffering. And honestly, I want to see it become a movement where it's the thing that we're Mm -hmm. all doing, where we're all cheerleading. Um, And it doesn't cost any money to care. Mm -hmm. Doesn't cost any money to care. Yeah. Love it. Love it. So how can people get in touch with you, Quinn? Um, You can email me at uh, Q. G-S-A-L-A-Z-A-R at gmail.com. I can also be reached by phone and I am more than willing to share my number. It's totally fine. It's 678-360-0253. Within the next few months, I am hoping to launch a website. Got to get that PhD first. Got to get those steps out of the way first. Um, But those those are the primary ways to reach me. And I'm responsive. And, you know, if there's any way that I can support any of your listeners, any of your audience members, I'm a a phone call, a text, an email away. Um, And I would love to to really help shape this new movement. Awesome. And we will put that information in the show notes as well. So thank thank you. you so much for coming on this show. I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. Likewise, and you are phenomenal. You are a rock star. Thank you. I have to say this from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for giving us 
those of us who are in the space of serving our communities, a forum, a space where we can talk about our passion and we can have it bleed through and hopefully impenetrate others. So thank you for your calling and thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you as well. 